Well, good afternoon. Oh, that's good. We're, uh, my name's Ian. Um, I'm the minister of the church here, and uh, it's uh, my privilege to just share some thoughts now uh, from the Bible. If you're a visitor, our habit in our church here is that we, rather than like pick a mix in the Bible, we tend to sort of pick a, a part of the Bible and we'll work through it week by week. And we're currently in the middle of a series in an Old Testament book that is called Judges. And it's uh, it's an odd book in many ways. Um, this book, just to give you a context, is after the Israelites came out of Egypt with Moses to the Promised Land, but before they appointed kings. And there's a period in the, in the middle, a few hundred years, where they were led by uh, different people who were known as Judges. And... Uh, in many ways, as we've seen, Judges is a grim book. Um, it's a real downward spiral of uh, messy, dysfunctional stuff going on. I, I think if you read Judges and then read today's newspaper, there wouldn't be a lot of difference between the two, uh, to be honest. There's a lot of uh, interesting stuff goes on. Um, last week, Jai introduced us to one of these judges called Jephthah. And today, I want to look at what happens in his life. We were introduced to him last week, but we're going to think about what happened uh, in, in his life. And in many ways, it is a tragic tale. Um, uh, is this, does this work, this thing? Or I'll let you do it. There you go. I just said that, didn't I? Anyway, Jeff there, a tragic tale. Um if this part of the Bible is significant for me because when I was younger, I was in a church where I grew up in the northwest. I grew up in Wigan. I was part of a church. And in my late teens, I was asked if I would lead uh, a small discussion group, a little Bible study in the church. I was very young. I was quite daunted. The first time I'd been asked to lead a little group in the church as a young person... And they gave me this passage. I mean, they might as well have put a picture on the wall of me and thrown darts at it. Because it's a really difficult passage, this. In the church then, we were actually going through a New Testament book called Hebrews. And in chapter 11 of Hebrews, there's a whole list of the history of the Israelites. And Jephthah is mentioned just by name. It doesn't say anything about him, but he's just there in the name. And it just fell on that week. We were up to Jephthah and they said... Can you lead a discussion on this man, Jephthah? He ends up sacrificing his only daughter. I can't remember how the discussion went, but I do remember being deeply troubled by this man. It's a tragic tale. Now, we, I, I think you'd agree that we're familiar in our culture with the idea in literature of a tragedy. Shakespeare wrote tragedies, tragic stories. And before him, the Greeks made tragedies almost into a kind of art form. And the idea in a tragedy is that there's a hero or a central character who is trying to achieve something, but because he has within himself some kind of character flaw or defect, he ends up going too far and as a result ruining everything. That's why it's a tragedy, isn't it? 
One writer says this, the heroes of Greek tragic dramas, they rose too high, they grew too confident, they flew too free until one fatal misjudgment or mistake unraveled all that they had so diligently achieved. That's a great summary of a tragedy, isn't it? One great example from Greek mythology, you might know the story of a man called Icarus. Do you know that story? His father, Daedalus, was an inventor, and the father and son were in captivity on the island of Crete. And uh, Daedalus, his dad, was an inventor, and so he made, for him and his son, wings stuck together with wax, and he gave his son a little lecture, and he says, son, follow me. Don't fly too high, because the sun will melt the wax, and don't go too low, or you'll fall into the sea. Just follow me. I looked it up on Wiki, because it's right Wiki, isn't it? This is what it says on Wiki. I love this quote. Overcome by the giddiness that flying lent him. <laughs> I can fly. Overcome by the giddiness that flying lent him, Icarus soared into the sky, but in the process he came too close to the sun, which due to the heat melted the wax. Icarus kept flapping his wings, but he soon realised he had no feathers left and that he was only flapping his bare arms. And so Icarus fell into the sea. He got giddy. He got too excited. He went too far. That is the essence of a tragedy. Going too far. The central hero always goes just that little bit too far. We know it in life, don't we? You watch soap operas on TV, you can watch Corrie, and it'll be like, oh man, I wish he just went, just, he was a good, he just went too far and ruined everything. If only, if only. They didn't need to do that. Jephthah is the central character in these chapters we're going to look at. But there are three distinct episodes here that all have tragic consequences because someone, someone went too far. Here's a little overview of what we're going to do. And you can settle down now. There's three sections here. We're going to look at chapter 11 two sections and then we'll get into chapter 12 the first part is about Jephthah's careful diplomacy and we'll get into that in a moment with the king of Ammon I'll explain that and then we'll see the rash promise that he made to God about his daughter and then lastly and probably more briefly in chapter 12 we'll think about his brutality towards the Ephraimites who criticised him. So three sections, all of them tragic because someone goes too far, a little bit too far, and it all ends in tears. So three things, and then we'll, we'll wrap up at the end with some concluding thoughts. So first of all, the tragedy of restless greed. Um, last week, Jai showed, keep pointing at him here, Jai showed how Jephthah became the leader of this part of the people of Israelites, the Gileadites. Um, he negotiated with them, and they eventually appointed him the leader. 
Jephthah was an outcast, the son of a prostitute. His brother sent him away. But he was a warrior, and when they needed someone to fight, they went to find him and brought him back. And he agreed, after some negotiation, that he would lead them. The first thing he does is to act like a king. And he sends envoys to negotiate with the king of Ammon. So let's read, first of all, the first section I want to look at is in Judges chapter 11 and from verse 12 down to verse 28. If you've got a Bible, one of the church ones, it's on page 255, if you want to follow. So Jephthah's the new leader, judge, whatever title you want to give him. And this is what God's word says. Then Jephthah sent messages to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you've attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messages, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the river Arnon to the river Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now, give it back peacefully. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. And then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused, so Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they travelled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the river Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the river Arnon to the river Jabbok, and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight them? For 300 years Israel occupied Heshbon, Aroah and the surrounding settlements and all the towns along the Arnon why didn't you retake them during that time I haven't wronged you but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me let the Lord the judge decide this dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites the king of Ammon however paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him am I bothered do a lot of it <laughs> that, that's his response well in verse 12 he asked a question the king of Ammon is wanting the land 
that they now possess. And Jephthah asked them a simple question. Why are you you attacking us? What's your problem? And the king of Ammon gives a very interesting reply and effectively says, that land is mine. It was mine. And I want it back. And he knows the history of how Israel came out of Egypt, but he puts a twist on things by suggesting that Israel has stolen this land from the Ammonites. At this point, Jephthah does not want to fight And he acts like a very careful diplomat and he tries to win this battle with arguments and words rather than fists and swords. And his arguments are devastating. Just give me another slide in. He basically says to the king of Ammon, your history is wrong, your theology is wrong, your attitude is wrong and your timing's out, mate. (laughs) That's what he basically says to him. First of all, your history's wrong. Israel is not the aggressor here. I need to just show you a little map. Um, can you see that? Because it, it's not good with the lighting, is it? This is a map of Israel. Let me just put a light on. There's meant, there's meant to be a different colour in there. Can you just about see it? That darker colour is really what became Israel. The promised land. There's Ammon, and he's Edom and Moab. The Israelites came from Egypt down here through the desert, and they didn't come into the west of the land. They actually came this way. Do you remember what he said? We sent a message to the king of Edom saying, let us travel through your country. He said, no. We sent the same message to the king of Moab. He said, no. So what we did was, we skirted round the sides of their countries, we got to the river Arnon, which is that blue line there, and we camped there, and then we sent a message in exactly the same way to Sion and said, can we pass through your country, mate? It wasn't Ammon, this was Amorite land, this bit on the east of the Jordan. Can we go to your country, mate? He didn't even send an answer, he just sent his army, and we flattened him. So actually, we didn't rob the land off anyone. We wanted to pass through it peacefully. He came to us wanting to fight. We beat him. This land of the Amorites is ours. Ammon, you never even own this land, mate. (laughs) Your history is very mixed up. And ever since then, that strip of land between the Jabbok River and the Arnon River has been ours. Not because we were being aggressive but because they wouldn't let us pass through peacefully and wanted to smash us. The king of Ammon is lying and trying to revise history and suggest that Israel nicked it from his forefathers to justify him being aggressive. I want back what's mine. It was never yours, mate. (laughs) Go back to where you get back in your home, mate. It was never yours. You get that point anyway. Let's go one more slide. Eh? Also, your theology is wrong. He, he, I mean, politicians don't do this very often, do they? Tony Blair, well, his PA said famously, "We don't do God," and he's done God ever since, hasn't he? Tony Blair. He seems to think he's God's man to bring peace everywhere. He brings God into it, and he says, actually, behind all of this politics and shenanigans, actually, in the end. The sovereign hand of God is behind all the intrigues of men. Ultimately, politicians actually 
are not in an ultimate sense in charge. The sovereign king is actually the Lord God himself. And he says, God has given us this land. We've actually done nothing wrong. We were not the aggressors. And you too should be content with what God's given you. And then he says, your attitude's wrong. There's a little dig here to the king of Ammon in uh, verse 25. He says, are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of... What, What he's really saying is, who do you think you are, mate? Who do you think you are? None of the other kings around here have acted like you're acting. Do you think you're somehow better than them? They didn't pick fights with us. What makes you different to all the others? Why are you taking this line? Do you somehow think you're a cup of the rest? And that's confirmed as well by the final argument that your timing's all wrong. 300 years have gone by and no one has asked any questions about this land until you just did. If this was such an enormous injustice, why haven't you retaken it during that time? You're making this up because you are in a mode of aggressive expansion and you're justifying your greed for our land with lies. And the last verse is the summary of how Jephthah argues. Verse 27, I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. And he basically says to him, let God decide. He's claiming the moral high ground, isn't he? You get the kind of story? The king of Ammon could not be less interested if he tried to look not interested, could he? I mean, Jeff has spent like ages writing this essay. Proper good diplomatic response. <laughs> I don't know. The envoy must have read it out and the king of Ammon just goes, nah, whatever. <laughs> Am I bothered? Do I care? Who's he think he is anyway? The king of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent. He doesn't want to listen to reason. He doesn't want to listen to God. He wants land and power and expansion. And he goes a little bit too far. I want to suggest to you that his greed... His restless greed makes him blind. And the tragedy is that in the end it costs him everything. In the ensuing battle, God does give the Ammonites into Jephthah's hands. And it says in verse 30, it speaks in verse 33 of devastation. Twenty towns devastated. Ammon was utterly crushed one of the lessons for us why, why am I saying all this it's not just history lesson this what, one of the lessons for us is to see something of how our own desires sometimes can blind us they can sometimes blind us even to basic common sense when we when we want something so badly It can be hard for us to listen to reason. 
It can be hard for us sometimes to listen to God. And sometimes in life, we too can go too far in our desires and end up ruining things. Maybe even ruining ourselves. So that's the king of Ammon. Secondly, the tragedy of subtle unbelief. The first, I want to talk about Jephthah next. Um, Let's read it first, shall we? Chapter 11, verse 29, then. We'll break into story. This this is the tragic uh, part. Um, Verse 29 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands he devastated 20 towns from Aroa to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Abel Keramim Thus Israel subdued Aaron. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. And after the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. I mean, I wish you had a fortnight. I mean, that, that is so full, isn't it, of tragedy. The first thing I want you to notice, we're not going to answer all the questions that this throws up, we haven't got time, but... Um, the first thing I want you to notice here is how little attention the author of Judges gives to the battle. Did you notice that? It's almost like the battle is a side issue, isn't it? We've had this long diplomacy, and then the king of Ammon comes and there's a massive fight. And it says that the spirit of the Lord comes on Jephthah, he's got momentum with him, he's gathering his men. And, and in between, he makes this vow, if you'll give me victory... And then in verse 32, it's like a little battle sandwich with Jephthah's vow in the, in the middle. And then he goes to fight. Two verses, that's all we get. 20 times. I mean, you could write 10 chapters on that. The passage doesn't focus so much on the big stuff, the battles, but it focuses on the man and his heart. 
One writer says this, the Bible's agenda reflecting the concerns of its divine author is always more concerned about God's work in the life of the man he chooses to take up and use than with what he does through him. In our activist age, we need to be reminded often that what we are before God is more important than what we accomplish for him. Relationship matters more than service. Indeed, the one is the precondition of the other. The point is that while God cares about what you do, he cares much more about who you are. He cares about why you do the things you do, how you do the things you do. He's not just interested in what you do, he's interested in your heart, your desires. I think when we look at things in that way, we can see what the author's trying to do and we can see that Jeff there is very mixed up. At first, he sounds very pious, spiritual. Verse 27, he seems to sound very confident to leave it all with God, let God decide between us. But it's big talk, isn't it? Then we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him He's empowered as he motivates his army. He has the wind in his sails. He has momentum. And yet, he's still not sure that God is truly with him. And the clue is always in the little word, if. If. If you'll give the Ammonites into my hands... This is what I'll do for you. If. If. He so desperately wants victory, doesn't he? He wants to be thought well of as a leader. His fear seems to be that all the power that he's now successfully negotiated for himself will be gone. If he loses this battle, he's an embarrassment. His primary concern here seems to be that he's not embarrassed and rejected and loses things. Rather than his concern being for God's honour, he's really thinking about himself. He's using pious language, he sounds very spiritual, but actually, he's only thinking about me, myself and I. And for Jeff, there's a pattern here. He neg- Last week, Joe was saying, he negotiated very hard with the Gilead elders to get the top job. And he got crowned leader and he got everything he wanted. Then he negotiates hard with the king of Ammon. And he got some response, but it wasn't a particularly positive one. Now he's negotiating with God himself. (laughs) If you'll do this, then I'll do that. What does God say? Zip. He does it's silence, it's deafening. He, he seems to be a bit of a player, doesn't he? He's he's negotiating constantly to get what he feels he needs. And as it goes, first he gets what he wants, then he nearly gets what he wants, then he doesn't hear anything at all from God. He's basically treating God like he treats everyone else. 
negotiating, controlling, manipulating. The big problem for Jeff here, even though he sounds pious, is that he's really trying to control God rather than trust in God. His bargaining with God doesn't proceed from his faith. His bargaining with God proceeds from his doubt. He's not sure that God is on his side, actually, is he? He's trying to make God his servant. But you can't play those games with God. There's nothing that we can do to coerce God. There's a lesson for us here, isn't there? Sometimes as Christian people, we can say that we believe in God's unconditional love. And yet so often we fall into a trap of living in a way that is really making bargains with him that always seem to start with the word if. Oh God, if you, then I will. The root of it is that we don't actually really believe that he cares. The tragedy in this is that Jephthah didn't need to make a vow. He went too far. God was already with him. God did, in fact, love him. God was being faithful to him and to his people. But Jephthah, I don't know if I want to be too hard on him, he's a product of his time, isn't he? He worships God like a pagan. They're in the promised land, but they've been canonized. <laughs> He's meant to worship God, and he kind of does with his words, but in his heart, he's behaving like a pagan. He wants power, control, prestige, and he thinks that God is only there to give him those things. He's a warrior. He's a big, strong, fighting man. But actually, in his heart, he's enslaved by his own selfish desires and ambition. And the end of the story is so tragic, isn't it? The writer seems to underline the fact that this is his only daughter. I, I don't think the daughter cares that he's won a battle. I think she just loves him because he's his dad. Dad's, dad's good, he's won. She runs out to meet him, dancing with tambourines, and the writer underlines it by saying she was an only child. And when he saw her, he says, you have made me miserable. I mean, she hasn't made you miserable, mate. <laughs> you made a rash promise. And the sad, courageous faith of his daughter. We don't know her name. And nowhere in this account does God step in to kind of save him from his folly. It's very, very tragic, isn't it? One of the things that really struck me preparing this was when, when you look at the brief uh, judges in the next section in chapter 12, it talks about some of these judges having massive families, 30 sons and 30 daughters. There's another fellow who has 40 sons and 30 grandsons and 70 donkeys. And it's almost like the author's trying to say, the judges who came after, 
they're, they're, you know, they had all this massive family. Jephthah, it seems to me, was fighting to secure his future and he went that little bit too far and lost it all. He doesn't even have any descendants at all because his only daughter's gone. The potential. Jephthah, it's like a rags to riches story. How he overcame injustice, fighting to achieve things, and yet in the end, he just goes too far and ends up with nothing. One writer says Jephthah is the tragic figure presenting a pathetic picture of stupidity, brutality, ambition, and self-centeredness. In the end, he ends up weeping only for himself. And it seems to us, doesn't it, as we read these accounts, that God is being faithful in saving his people, but it's not at this point in any way a perfect salvation, is it? It's messy and dysfunctional and fraught with tragedy. God's purposes are working themselves out, but there's a consequence and a cost because of the way his people behave. We called this series Fallen People, Faithful God. That's a good summary, I think, of what's going on here. Well, that was the king of Ammon. That was Jephthah. Let's uh, finally just quickly look into chapter 12. The tragedy of inactive jealousy. I just want to touch more briefly on this. We've met these Ephraimites before. The Ephraimites were a tribe of Israel. Um, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, but he wasn't given land as a tribe, but his sons were. So there's two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they're, they're quite, Ephraim and Manasseh, quite big tribes. And they, when you read Judges, the Ephraimites are like, I don't know, do you remember that program on TV um, with that Scottish guy in it? What was it called? One foot in the grave. Victor Maldry, it came to me. And he's, he's like a grumpy old man. I don't believe it. I, he, all the time he's moaning and whinging. And the Ephraimites, I think, a tribe of Victor Maldrews. Every, all the time, anything good happens, they're the first on the scene to show up and go, what did you do that for? They're, they're just like negative and miserable. Exactly the same thing happened with Gideon earlier in chapter 6. Seven was it? Or eight? Gideon diffused their anger with diplomacy, but Jephthah here now is not in the mood for talking. Um, they claim, oh man, we should read it, shouldn't we? Should, we? should we read it? That would help, wouldn't it? No idea what I'm talking about, have you? Chapter 12, let's read what happens. The tribe of Victor Meldrews. The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites. And the Lord gave me victory over them. Now, why have you come up to f- today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. 
And the Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, You Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim, and whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, Are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, All right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he couldn't pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel for six years, then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town called Gilead. The men of Ephraim, they claim they should have been involved, but Jephthah says, I did ask, and you never showed up. They gripe. One writer says this, the Ephraimites feel that they are somebody's and you don't treat somebody's like that. But Jephthah had been a nobody. And he was very likely unimpressed with somebody. <laughs> he knew what it was like to be an outcast. So when they come to him saying, what did you leave us out for? He's like, yeah, pull the other one, mate. Could it be that they weren't sure that the battle could be won, so they hesitated and didn't get involved? And then when the battle is won, they're the first on the scene saying, what did you not ask us for? Jeff was like, I did ask. You never showed up. But in verse 4, there's a suggestion that there's a bit of prejudice mixed in there. These Ephraimites did not like Jephthah and his merry men. Renegades, they called them. They're not pure Jews like we are. They're a bit rough. They're a bit edgy. They're a bit inferior. Jephthah was still, after all, the illegitimate son of a prostitute. And his little band of mercenaries here are a little more than thugs. It's as if the Ephraimites are saying to Jephthah, Who are you to go into battle against our enemies? Oh man, it's so true to life. Isn't it so in life sometimes that our secret prejudices can make us jealous of the success of others who we don't think deserve it? We're not happy to give the credit because we think they don't deserve it because they're not like us. But often the ones doing the criticising haven't actually got off their bottoms and done anything. They don't have the faith or the courage or the energy to get involved. And then afterwards, they just shout insults from the sidelines and say, what did you do that for? In the, um, I can't remember when it was, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a very, there was a great American preacher called D.L. Moody. You might, some of you might have heard of him. He preached to thousands of people. And uh, were, he was a public figure. And he was criticised for his methods in his preaching. And he replied very wittily, on the whole, I think God prefers the way I do it to the way you don't do it. <laughs> That's a great quote, isn't it? People sniping from the sideline that he was doing it wrong when they're not doing anything. I think God prefers the way I do do it to the way you don't do it. I've got to remember that quote. The response is tragic. Jephthah doesn't care about niceties. He's violent and 
decisive. These are brutal days. 42,000. And the horrible cleanse that goes on according to their pronunciation. I don't, I don't know what you'd compare that to in our country. Say Shibboleth. The Leaf uh, March couldn't say the H. And as soon as they pronounced the word, they knew. And they were knifed. I don't, I don't know. My wife's a scouser, as you know. It's quite a posh one, but I think, it, you know, if you're a scouser, I don't know. You, I'm sure there's words you could say. Say this, and the scouser wouldn't be able to. It would have a K in it, probably, wouldn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I'll, we'll have to cut that from the recording. I don't want Matt to my wife to hear that. Um, we've seen these three episodes, okay? I want to just draw to a close. Because there is a pastoral issue here just for you to think about. I think God's word here, this is narrative obviously, but God's word is quite incisive here in describing the kind of things that human nature is capable of. But I think you'd agree with me that there's something quite depressing about all of this. One of the depressing things is that God seems, he, he does rescue his people, the story carries on, but it seems like God is silent in the face of their tragic behaviour. And I think that is a worry when we come to passages like that. We perhaps haven't done the dramatic things that some of these people have done, but some of us do understand that our heart, our own hearts, can often have the seeds of these kinds of things in them. In our own eyes, often we are big and God is very small. And some of us will read this and be thinking, what am I like? I, I can see these traits in my own heart. I, I recognize that and I've been guilty of that. And then you look at God's silence in this chapter and how he doesn't respond and it all ends in tragedy. And those of you who are sensitive might think, how could God use someone like me? How could God love someone like me when I'm conscious of weakness like this? I, I can see the seeds of restless greed and subtle unbelief and inactive jealousy even in my own life. One writer says this, the purpose of the past, the purpose of the past is not to haunt the present, but to make us cleave all the harder to Christ. If we learn something of the depravity of our own heart, of the mistakes we're capable of making and the sins that we are capable of plunging headlong into, we shall find ourselves readier to hold onto the grace of God in Jesus Christ and walk humbly with him. Listen, the reason I've presented this as tragedy, as going too far, it's because actually our hope is found in the fact that God also goes too far. 
Tragedy, in a sense, is us going too far. Grace is God going too far. When we go too far, the consequences can be tragic. When God goes too far, the consequences are glorious. There's a whole bunch of things that God didn't need to do, but he has. The God of the Bible is a God of grace. And I I think the mixed up dysfunctional salvation that occurs here is it's almost designed to point us away from this, to warn us that this is what things can be like and point us to the perfect and lasting salvation that God himself brings about through this unfolding story. In the end, the descendants of these very people Jesus, God's own son, is born. I think God is teaching us through these stories that in the end we cannot save ourselves. We need a better saviour than a man like Jephthah. When we go too far, God goes even farther in sending his own son to be the perfect human being Instead of abandoning us and condemning us and judging us in our failure, God sends his son who loves us enough to lay down his life for us. Our tragic sin covered by his glorious grace. He is kind to us when we're not kind. He loves us when we don't love He gives us what we don't deserve. He picks up the pieces that we so often drop. His grace goes further than our sin. I I think one of the keys here, what what we want to know is, what what do I do with that? How, How do I respond to that? One of the keys here, I think, is how you see God and you. None of these men... In, this, in these accounts that we read, none of these men thought they were as bad as they really were. And as a result, I don't think any of them realised how good and gracious God is either. They were too big and God was too small. A friend of mine posted this on his blog this week. It's not my words. But let me read to you. I thought this was very profound, very counterintuitive, if you like. This is what he wrote. We live in a psychotherapeutic culture which constantly seeks to bolster our self-esteem by assuring us how good we are by nature. In contrast, the gospel demands that we face up to the reality of just how wicked and evil we are by nature And therefore, how much we need the grace of God and his forgiveness and mercy through the Lord Jesus. Rather than leading to despair, accepting the truth about ourselves is ultimately liberating because we will never then be taken by surprise by the wickedness we unearth in our hearts and that manifests itself in all our temptations. The king of Ammon thought God was irrelevant and it made him restless and greedy. 
Jephthah wasn't sure whether God loved him, and it made him anxious and controlling and selfish. The Ephraimites thought they were somebody's and that God owed them things. In fact, God owes us nothing, but goes way too far in giving us everything. Listen, when we get God wrong, we will always go too far, somehow. So how do you see God? And how do you view yourself today? Will your life be a tragedy of going too far? Or will it be marked by the blessing of knowing his glorious kindness and grace? The Bible tells us that this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him.